Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Be in verse 12 here in just a moment. Uh, I I don't do this enough, and I should probably do it every week. Uh, These uh, men and women that are around this room standing up right now that serve us communion and collect offering, people at the back doors that open the doors for us, make sure that our sidewalks are as, as clean as they can be, that take care of us around the building, take care of our kids. Would you help me express appreciation to all of those who serve every week? If you are visiting Christ Church today, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the ministerial staff here at Christ Church, and we're glad that you've joined us for worship. Uh, we are in this series called Enough. You saw the bumper video a little bit earlier in the hour, and it's focusing us on a passage that was written by Paul to a church in the town of Colossae. A couple of uh, pieces of background information I need to remind you of and catch those of you who are just joining us up on this series. Uh, the letter to the Colossians was written to Christians. That's very important for us to remember. He's talking to those who already know who Jesus is, and he's reminding them that Jesus is enough. There had been false teachers that had come into Colossae and were beginning to say that if you have Jesus plus these things, these new teachings, that you can gain deeper spiritual insight. In week one, Michael DeFazio spoke for us, and he led us in the first 14 verses and introduced us to this wonderful concept, remember what you signed up for. And and I don't want us to take that statement I want us to remember it well, and to remember it, we need to understand that he's not saying, remember, you signed up for this, now you can't quit. He's saying, no, remember the grace and goodness of God that you signed up to be a part of. Remember the goodness of the Lord. The the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in week two, uh, Cody Walker talked to us about establishing our identity, that there's image management going on all around us, yet our image should be defined by Jesus, not by the world and what they think of us. And then in week three, we talked about Jesus plus anything else is idolatry. That to, to say that I can, I can find my real life if I have Jesus in a great job or I have Jesus in the right relationship. No, Paul says, no, no, Jesus is enough. Remember all the gifts that he brings you regardless of any other attachments. And then last week, as you can see in the room, there are these beautiful pieces of paper flying above us. And if you weren't here last week, we asked everybody to, to, in the passage where Paul says, to put off the things of the world and to put on the freedom in Christ, we asked everybody to write what they were willing to put off, what they wanted to put off, and what they wanted to put on in its place, and now these fly above us. And it's interesting to me that I think they represent the best part of why we worship together, because these things that we're laying on our hearts are now floating above us between us and God. I think that's more than symbolic. I think it's pretty powerful. And last week, uh, we as the staff took all of these, and I was amazed because there were 1,700, uh, over 1,700 responses last week, and I wouldn't have bet any of you we'd had 30. I thought maybe a couple of people each hour would come up, and to see you all stand in line to walk up here and throw symbolically a piece of paper at the feet of God before the cross was amazing. But when we processed those in staff meeting on Monday, we went through, and, and we're hurting, aren't we? I mean, I'm, I'm glad you were honest, and it gives us insight into what we can be talking about as a church family, but bitterness, resentment, anger, immorality, addictions, fear, control. When I read all those things, I, I wasn't, I, it wasn't like I looked down at you. I thought, they're like me. I mean, truthfully, I felt more at home than I've ever felt here. It's like, it's not a pretend place. There's a lot of people in the community who think that all this is is the best show in town. It's not even a good show. 
It's a bunch of real people getting together going, man, I'm jacked up. How about you? I am too. Let's find Jesus. So in, in light of this, you know, there were a couple of moments where I looked at a couple of these things on the list and I go, well, I'm glad that's not me. And then last night, I had three of the strangest dreams I've ever had. I don't remember my dreams, and you don't care about them, so I'll be brief. But I don't remember my dreams, but I woke up, and in two of my three dreams, I was yelling at people. I don't know that I have an anger issue. I must have an anger issue, because God showed me in two dreams, I have an anger issue. I got thrown out of a hockey game and a soccer game, and I don't play either sport. (laughs) Honest truth. So I, I roll out of bed this morning, and Heather goes, are you all right? She goes, you didn't sleep. Well, I didn't sleep at all. And what I realized was a lot of us are dealing with anger and resentment and how come life's not working out the way we want it to work out. And I want to remind you why we're talking about Jesus is enough. Because these are between us and God now. And we need to leave them there, right? We need to trust that Jesus will help them get completely out of our grasp. So in light of all of this, I want to share with you what, it's kind of a different sermon for me. It's more of a discussion and I hope you'll participate. I want to show you what Paul is telling the people of Colossae they need to remember to be able to put off the things of the world and to put on the things of Jesus. The first thing is what needs to be our motive. First thing I want to, I I see that Paul teaches us here is that our motive to put off the world and put on Christ is the grace of Jesus. Now that shouldn't surprise any of you who attend church regularly. That the word grace is a word we throw around all the time, unmerited favor. That people are good to one another and and we say they have graced us. Or we jokingly, when we haven't seen someone in a long time and they're busy, we say, well, thank you for gracing me with your presence. But the word grace is a profound word. Heather and I were just talking uh, this weekend. We have just been in a season and we don't know why. But we have been graced by people's generosity. And I ask myself the question, why, why, God, are you doing this? And then I'm reminded of something which is one of my core values in Jesus is There's no blessing God gives me that I'm supposed to keep. All of it's supposed to be passed on and to be a blessing to somebody else. Well, the motive of the grace of Christ is the same concept. What Jesus has done for us in his goodness is to be shared with others. And that's how we put on and put off the world and put on Jesus. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, and remember, what's it therefore? You can't understand this text if you don't understand what he's already said. So we need to keep reading this book in its entirety to understand any of its singular moments. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Because we have put on anger and malice and resentment, and addictions, and we've put off the the temptations of the world, the sensuality, and we've decided to become toward holiness and pursue purity in Jesus because Jesus is enough, and we know that's true. Paul says, therefore, put off all those things that are getting you nowhere and, in fact, digging you deeper, and put on the things that build up unity, the things that make others more important than us. He says in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, God loved us. God loves us. God will always love us. And in a world that says, how can a God who loves punish? He doesn't want to. You've given him no option. You're rejecting your salvation. And the punishment will not be that God throws something onto your life 
that you've never had before, the punishment of God is he's going to give you what you're asking for, which is absolute abandonment from him. The punishment of God will be we get what we ask for, which means we get a life without God. And no matter what you think of God, you've never had a life without God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And when all of his blessings are gone, you won't want what you're asking for. And so he loved us. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 7.7 when Moses was reminded why God was good to them, the Israelites. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people because the Lord loved you. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were the most promising nation? No. The greatest nation? No. The most talented nation? No. They were chosen because God loved them. And let us not forget that our motive in life is not that we have entered into this relationship. The motive in life is that we have been loved. And as we've been loved, we should love. He says he set us apart as holy. Now, I always grew up in the church, and I don't know, I I don't think anyone ever taught me this. I just perceived it as what was being taught. But I've always grown up thinking holiness was perfection. And I found out it's not. Holiness is being set apart being sanctified or sterilized, if you will, from the things of the world for a greater purpose. And the only uh, connection that I make with it, and hopefully it's simple enough that uh, you can see what I see, is that the marriage ceremony sets a man and a woman apart from all others to be together, to be in a relationship that's unique. And I think that's what it means to be holy, to be set aside from the world, to be married to God, to live in that relationship with God, set apart from all other distractions and relationships. So not only are we loved and set apart, but we've been forgiven. That God forgives us and that God loves us and that he wants to provide for us. And he doesn't do it because we've earned it. He does it because he wants to give us new opportunity and new hope and new growth. And Paul says, therefore, because you've been loved and you've been set apart and you've been forgiven, then you now have the ability through the power of God's spirit in Jesus Christ, you and I have the ability to be compassionate. And compassion is taking the feeling of responsibility for another person and providing them what could be a blessing. Kindness. Focus on another person's best interest. Humility. Estimating yourself properly before God and others properly before God. Gentleness. The Greek word means a soothing wind, a healing medicine. You're out in those 110 degree days here in southwest Missouri and you walk outside and it's so hot it's like someone's breathing on you all the time. And a nice gentle breeze comes across. That's interesting. That's the Greek word for gentleness. God providing that for us. Patience, forbearance, forgiveness. And Paul says all of this, all of this must be accomplished in love. Where did he begin? We've been called by God and loved. We should now be called by God to love. It's it's circular. Paul is so good in all of his writings of giving us the theology and then bringing it into the practical reality. And they're not separate of one another. Too many of us have a great theology and no practical reality. And Paul says, no, I want to expand you. I want to show you that Jesus is enough and he's enough to allow you to live the life of love you've received, the life of forgiveness you've received. So he says, put on love. Put off the things of the world and put on love. So our motive is the grace of Jesus. Our affirmation is the peace of Christ. Which is fascinating to me that he's telling us this, that he says that there's an affirming moment that you know that you're right with God. It's in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. 
He goes from character to conduct. And what I find interesting is, and this is one of those illustrations that Paul uses that I, I understand. The word rule, if I understand it correctly in the Greek, is the equivalent of referee. That peace is the umpire of our lives that tells us if we're fair or foul, in or out, safe or disqualified. And it's kind of fascinating that peace is one of those words that if you interpret it like I have my entire life, peace means we're not fighting. And that's not peace biblically. The word shalom means wholeness. It's not only that you and I are not in disagreement, but sometimes you can be in disagreement while fully in disagreement. Can I have an amen? If you've been married for any period of time, not to make light of it, you can learn to get along and never solve the issue that's causing you not to get along. That's not peace. Peace is a wholeness. It's the word shalom. It's offering complete honesty and openness and living together even in the midst of our differences. And yet, he says, let the peace of Christ referee or umpire your heart. When when the will of God is not being performed in our lives, we realize we're not at peace with God. And peace does not mean perfection. Peace means relationship. It's opening yourself up to and being a part of it. And unfortunately, in the, last, well, in the last 30 days, I've had to have two conversations with people who attend this congregation, who, who want desperately to find wholeness in Jesus, but they are living overtly in relationships that are not accommodating to the Spirit of God and not accommodating to the truth of Scripture. And yet one of the men looked at me recently and said, I have peace about what I'm doing. And my response biblically is, so? I can have peace in my heart about anything that makes me feel good. But do I have peace with God's heart? Can I offer my actions as glory to his name or simply glory to my satisfaction? And in light of that, we had a wonderful conversation. I don't know that we agreed, but my challenge was, the Old Testament says the heart can be deceived above all things. So one of the reasons we flew our prayers to God last week was because we realized we are not the arbitrator of what's right or wrong. God is. And a God who loves us, dearly loves us, and is setting us apart for better living, it's not our behavior, it's our hearts that he wants to change so that he can change our appetites. And so our motivation is grace and our affirmation is peace. And how does that peace come together? It comes from our guide, which is the word of Christ. It comes from the guide. Peace comes from understanding what the word of God says and abiding within it and through it. Verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Let it dwell. Greek word means let it make its home in you. How does the peace of Christ rule us? It's because the word of God dwells richly within us. Remember, I I told you at the beginning, when I was babbling on at the beginning about background information, and some of you go, I know, I know, I know. Now here's where it makes sense. Because Paul was facing a bunch of teachers that were teaching the Colossian Christians that Jesus wasn't enough, that they could go deeper and more spiritual if they disaspired to these new things. And Paul says, no, no, the peace of Christ will show you that the word of God is the will of God. That the words of Jesus matter. And Paul says, I want you to hold on to the scriptures and understand who Jesus is. And Some movements of Christianity have taken this verse and they have contracted the way to worship is found in this verse. And if you read the whole letter, you'll realize you can't segment this out for that. What Paul is saying to us is when we have peace with Christ, then the word of God will pour out of us because we found our depth. You see, it's 
I said this first hour, and I was told, say it again, so I will. You cannot allow the preacher of your church to tell you what the Word of God says. You need to let the Word of God tell you what the Word of God says. Please don't trust me. If you come in going, oh, Mark will tell me what it says. Or, well, no, I'm just like you. I'm discovering every day. I can go back over the last 27 years and pull out sermons that I could show you no one should ever preach, and I had. So if you're letting your preacher tell you what the Word of God says, you've misunderstood the power of the Word of God. We need to join together in our hearts to unite around the truth. And God will reveal that to you. But, you know, you can know the book and not know the author, but you can't know the author unless you've read the book. So the Word of God should re- to dwell richly in us, make us feel at home with this truth, and the, the Spirit of God will give us peace through that. I think it's funny, to the Ephesians, Paul said, be filled with the Spirit, and to the Colossians, he says, be filled with the Word. And someone go, well, which one is it? It's both. Let the Spirit of God bring the Word of God to your understanding so that you may know the riches and goodness that Jesus is enough. Our motivation is grace, our affirmation is peace, and our guide is the Word. And this is where Paul's headed us to. I would really like to stop right here. 12 minutes early, walk out a hero, and have you like me for one week. But Paul's not going to let us. Because Paul then not only tells us why we should act in new life, what power we have available to us through the peace and word, but then he takes it to the hardest place for us to live out our Christianity, our homes. And if you read ahead for this week, and you read the passage, you're bracing yourself for an argument. Oh, he's going to say, husbands love and wives submit. He takes us into our home. It's easy, for me to be, it's easy for me to cast an image on this stage that I don't cast at home. It's easy for you to think maybe something that I have a, a, a deeper level of God than the people I get to work with, my teammates every week. And Paul says, no, no, it's, we're going from character to conduct. Because what you believe will affect how you behave. And he takes us to the home, verses 18, or excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 17. And by the authority that he gives us to live this life, the name of Jesus, the authority, this is a big issue here. When Paul starts to talk about conduct, he's not talking about feelings, he's not talking about desires, he's not talking about rewards. Paul bases all of our practical living on the authority of Jesus. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The name of Jesus has more significance than our culture will allow. Jesus has become a slang term, a funny expression, or an obscenity. Yet he's the king of all kings, lord of all lords, creator of all the world. If you remember back in week, uh, I believe it was in week one, in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul has already established, but because we read it in segments, we forget what's been stated already, that Paul has said, never forget, Jesus is not only enough, he's the man. And nothing happens that does not come from his authority. So our lives should change because of his authority. Dr. Greg Boyd recently, uh, in a message that was very timely for me, he said that, he said something fascinating to me, and I knew this, but the way he put it in front of me just gave me a good week of thought. He said, God is the one who establishes all authority. But we need to be careful that in the authority that is placed over us, that the reason we honor that authority is not for the authority's sake, but for the king's sake. 
In other words, and I'm going to do something controversial now because some of you are going to read into this politics and you'll miss my point. We have a president of the United States. I don't care what he or she name is. I don't care. Pick your favorite president. Pick the one you've actually liked if you can find one. And you have been placed by God under their authority as the president of the United States. But I do not abdicate the authority of Jesus to the president of the United States. I honor the president of the United States and show him respect so I can give Jesus Christ the respect he's asked for. That's the pecking order in our world. We are not taken to man or to man's authority, but we honor the authority that God has put us under so that we can bring Christ's glory. Now, it's funny because I get people going, harumph, that's right. Now, let's talk about your house. Let's go into your home relationships. Uh, No amens, no harumphs. That's what I thought. 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. I need to say that again. Children, obey your parents in everything. Braden might be back there. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Do you guys get the authority here? If you think that I'm going to go verse by verse and break it down into pieces about what it means to submit and what it means to love and what it means to obey, I'm not. Because in context... Paul has a much grander vision. We can talk about that if you want. And I'm sure Michael will cover it on Wednesday nights when he goes through that passage. So I basically handed it off to him (laughs) and I'm going to move on. But in the home, if there's one place where goodness, gentleness, kindness, compassion, love and unity should be found, church, where should it be? It should be in our homes. Husbands, treat your wives like, like the cherished vessel they are to you. Wives, show your husband how to be the man by believing in him and helping him get there. Children, understand your parents have a horrible job. They won't be good at parenting until they're grandparents. And you don't make it easier. And in all of this, do this so that the authority of Jesus can be seen in the world and people can see a healthy home. And I'm scared to death that most of our homes are not what Paul talks about. Most of our homes are accounting firms where ledgers are held about what was done badly. And people in the home look at the ledger sheet and realize, I'll never pay off the debt, so why bother? That's not the vision of the home. See, Paul had a radical concept of what Jesus could do in our homes. He could make husbands and wives equal, serving in their gifts, loving one another and growing one another. That children could be a part of the family and that parents didn't look at children as possessions but they looked at children so they could encourage them and raise them up. And when you raise them up in balance where they're under authority and they're submissive to their parents, all of that is how God works his wonderful grace in the home. So Paul says our homes can be different and it's the radical nature of the gospel that society puts men and women in place. They put children in places, and they say, this is the right way to do it. And Jesus said, no, let me change your home. Let me flip it upside down and show the world what real unity and love looks like. This isn't impossible, church. It's just improbable in a world that says everyone should be happy, everyone should have everything they want, or it's not a loving home. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Because most of the things we really need are the hardest things we'll ever face. And through Jesus, it's possible. You see, everything in this passage is centered on Jesus, as is fitting to the will of the Lord, or that it will please the Lord. Notice that it's under the authority by which we live. And then he jumps from the home to our workplace. Paul's not playing. He's not talking about Christianity in a phone booth. 
Paul's talking about the reality of living out our faith in the everyday realities that we come into. And by doing that, we give Jesus glory and we understand his authority and we find out Jesus is enough. You see, you'll never know Jesus is enough until you make him enough. Because the world is always going to compete for one small slice of our lives. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only with, when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Uh, unfortunately, throughout history, Christianity has used this verse to justify slavery. Shame on us. And most of us dismiss it today and say it's, it's an irrelevant concept. But a little bit of historical background here. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't have it, but let's be honest. Slavery back then was not always the root system of the miniseries that we all saw in the 70s, if you saw it. Some of it was indentured servitude. Some people would, would apply themselves to work for someone and become their servant, if you will. The word slave has such a strong connotation. Now, there was some that were taken against their will, or they were captured in warfare by the Romans, and they were used as slaves. And some of those became believers, But what Paul is not doing is talking about the social rightness of this. He's talking about how the gospel can go in any circumstance and be profound. So he says to them, serve in everything you do and do it in reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In the worst conditions that we face, the gospel works. I want to say that again. In the worst conditions that you face, a broken home, broken parents, horrible work situation, a fumbled life and you can't find the ball. In all those circumstances, Paul is giving us hope that because of Jesus... And the power of Jesus, that we can put on the new life and it can be redeemed. And it can be useful. And it can change histories. Even in the case of a servant, he said, you can honor God in this and the light of Christ will be shown and lives will be changed. And histories showed that that's true. Last week, 1,700 different people in this room walked up here and floated prayers. Just a pile on our stage. Powerful. One of my favorite moments was at the end of the service, people were coming up and taking pictures of the prayers of our church. And now those prayers have been extended by the staff and the elders to God. But can, I'm just going to be honest. Some of us wrote, I want to put off anger and I want to put on joy and peace. And then you went out in the parking lot, had to wait too long and got mad. Some of you said you wanted to put off bitterness and put on peace and joy and then you went home and you said something harsh at home and ruined the afternoon. Some of you are still mad from last Sunday. Some of you said you wanted to put off immorality and you went back and you made it till about Tuesday and you turned your computer on and next thing you know, two hours later, you'd been in filth. Some of you said you wanted to put off slander and you wanted to stop thinking ill of other people and then first chance you got without thinking All of your thoughts about a person that were demeaning slipped out to another person. Somewhere in the middle of the week, you went, I can't do this. This Christianity thing, I, I can't do it. I try, I want to be better, and I never get there. So what happens is some of these are starting to float back down to earth. We're not gonna let that happen. 
You see, because if you think that how well you did this week is a sign of what, whether or not God heard you, you've misunderstood. It may be a long process for God to help us put off the filth and to put on Christ. But every day, remember what we talked about last week? Every morning I wake up putting on the new man, trusting in the power of God to provide for me. And last week, I, you know, all joking aside, when, when you know, Brad came to me and said, what do you think about doing this? I said, look, we can try it. But deep inside, I was skeptical. I don't know, man. People don't move around here. You know, we're one of those churches that everybody sits back and takes it in. And 1,700 people blew my mind. So I'm going to try it again. Let's be uncomfortable. I fear we got lucky last week. Some of us, some of us need to hand these things back again. Because Jesus heard you the first time, but your heart says, I can't live without this. And so if you have found yourself this week, if you found yourself reaching for these feelings, these things that satisfy again, and you want to hand those back to God, you say, God, I'm still fighting my anger. I got kicked out of a soccer game, you know? Home's not fun. It's a ledger sheet. It's not a love fest. I need to go back and say, I'm sorry. If you need to hand these things back to God, it's okay. Most of us are there. What I'd ask you to do right now is I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. You're safe in here. And if you struggled this week with surrendering what you tried to surrender last week, I just want you to reach your hand toward heaven. I want you to reach it high. I want you to say to God, please take this back. Put it off. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the peace of God and the word of God, hand it back to him. He'll take it. If you've grabbed it, release it. If you want him to hear your heart, raise your hand. There's nothing more than symbolism in this room right now. But this is a safe place to say, I'm not good at being holy. I want to be set apart. I want to be changed. I want to be cleansed. I'm going to pray for us. And it's just one brother in Christ praying for his brothers and sisters. Father, you know how much we hate our sin. And we don't hate it because we're caught. We hate it because it's ruining us. And I pray for those that have raised their hands to you today. God, you already knew they would, and you know why. I pray for freedom. I I pray that these things of the flesh, this filth, that as we're being set apart and sanctified by the Holy Spirit and the power of your word, God, I pray that you'll remove these scars, these cancers, these hurts. God, there are some people in this room who have never let you forgive them. They want to believe in a loving God, but they're, they're curious, they're, they're upset. Some are even offended by us. And I pray today that your spirit would work in this room, that you would give them hope, that it's not about us, it's about you, that you're enough, even when Christians fail and churches are flawed. Jesus, I know you want freedom in this place, and so I pray for it. I pray that you will show us how to become free, to release these things to you, to strive to put on the hope that we have in Jesus. And I pray today for those who don't know who Jesus Christ is, that you would ask somebody, help me. Help me know this guy you keep talking about. Lord, because that's why we're here, is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. Here in this room, and throughout our homes, our work, our school, everywhere we go. Lord, I pray this morning that you will move people in the way that moves them closer to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.